I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Len Lawson. He's the author of Chimes, just out at Get Fresh Books in 2019. He's also the co-editor of Hand in Hand, Poets Respond to Race. His poetry has been nominated for Pushcart and Best of the Net. He's received numerous fellowships from places like Callaloo and the Vermont Studio Center. Right now, he's completing his PhD at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania and teaching at the U of South Carolina in Sumter, which I just learned is about 90 minutes from the coast. So, Len, glad you're here. Well, uh, thank you, Charlie. Thank, grateful to be here with uh, you and your audience. So um, I appreciate you taking the time with me today. All right. And so that's, uh, your po if, I, if I were telling someone else about your poetry, I would say this guy is pretty straightforward and in your face. Do you approve mm. that? Do you approve that? Um, that's that's the nuts and bolts of it, I guess. I've heard something to that effect. Um, I like to use the word intense. Intense. That sounds better, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't work too hard on my friend on coming up with that. I just yeah. said if I was just talking to a friend and say, "Hey, I just read this book and I think you're going to like it," and that's probably what I would have said. All right. right. Have you all, all, always been that way? Your poetry is about issues, which will be obvious when you read it. But have you have you always been that way with poetry? I suppose yes. Um, I guess I don't. I, I don't necessarily try to uh, tiptoe into things. I think poetry is imagery, so um, I think I try to leave those lasting images that people will remember or uh, to create a feeling and intensity that people will remember um, once they leave the poem, that uh, once they think about the poem itself, they'll remember that feeling. So um, aside from the actual issue being addressed, it, just the poetry itself, the actual, um, the imagery and the emotion that rises up from it is what I'm trying to hit at. So. Um, I think that's what I'm trying to perfect as I continue to study the craft. Okay, so that's why it seems intensity is is a good word for uh, you know a, a basic characteristic of your work, right? And an intense, and also vivid. Being vivid goes with intensity to me. Like an intense image is vivid, or a vivid image is intense. It's not a synonym, but they go together. Right. I think that's the challenge of poetry as well, because um, it's been written for so long, so many centuries that um, it's sometimes tough to say something that has never been said or in a way that it hasn't been said or to find your own voice or your own niche. So um, right now, there's just so many people writing and so many different voices out there that to hit a key with the images or the the um, the emotions is challenging, and I think that's what separates the the strong from the weak or the good from the great. Even so, um, that's why it's it's a constant study of the craft and the constant uh, learning of uh, how to do that or you know to exercise your own ability to hit those marks where you want with your audience. 
who are a couple of poets who you uh, really like? I mean, like you read them and say, ooh, I'd like to do that. <laughs> um, well, I'm in South Carolina, so um, I'm partial to South Carolina native poets like uh, Terrence Hayes and Nikki Finney. Mm -hmm. uh, those are my influences, I guess. Uh, they are just brilliant at it. Um, the ability to just uh, make something normal, commonplace, or even just uh, a story or a narrative just come alive and, you know, take you to a place you never thought you'd be, especially in the South. So um, that, those will be two of my main influences. Mm -hmm. um, Toni Morrison as well, is who made me think that I could actually write <laughs> uh, from where I am, from my perspective. So, you know, her, just those words being used in different ways, you know, unlike any other is it's something that intrigued me. So Morrison's new book of speeches and essays and all that, that's really interesting. Got it from the library. Big fat right. book with a lot of short essays and commencement yeah. speeches and stuff like that. Really, uh, she's really got a lot. Really got a lot. So let, let's hear a poem. Okay, sure. Um, this is what I call the, the, I guess the title poem because it has the word in it. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's um, the book is called Chime. And um, this is uh, the title of this one is called The Black Body is a Wind Chime. Uh, I was thinking about this as, you know, kind of like, you know, what the poem, what the uh, book is really about and, you know, nicely puts all the poems in a nutshell. Uh, it's a sonnet, so I'll just start reading. The black body is a wind chime. Perfect for whistling bullets through. Singing discordant yet delicious screams. Symphonic scent of burning flesh. Climbing Kilimanjaro, leaving trails of blood. The black body is a piccolo, blown into but never kissed. Blistering white lips race to apply breath to it, but never desire real intimacy. Muscular music makes men mad with black notes filling their nostrils. String the black bare skin bamboo together and call them bones of holy ghosts sold on the auction block to the highest center. A chanting wind whips resistance through them. Something in there was suddenly making me think of Robert Bly. Okay. Talking images and how it goes there about, about two thirds, three quarters of the way down is when it just hit my head like brain, like mm, Bly. What, what were you doing down in that part? <laughs> um, I think uh, a lot of the the poems here are have the titles of like a metaphor, like what the body is or what mm -hmm. the body is like. Mm -hmm. So um, in my mind, that just led me to um, like an instrument that you blow into or like music itself. And just that image of um, being uh, intimate with something or someone, not necessarily sensually or sexually, but just, you know, having more of a relationship than just uh, something synthetic or just uh, just something casual. So that made me think about that as far as like um, 
how black people are appropriated as far as culture, um, music, the arts, dance, everything, you know, how uh, it's very popular to be black when it's entertainment, but it's not popular when, you know, it's death. So uh, that's kind of what I was getting at. And it led me back to uh, like a slave auction, you know, where, you know, you see bodies uh, lined up uh, for purchase rather than, you know, asking, you know, how they feel, what they're like. How about another poem? Okay. I think I'll read this one. Uh, there are a lot of poems in here about South Carolina and South Carolina issues. Um, so we've had a lot of natural disasters in the last few years. So uh, this one is related to the solar eclipse that, that came directly through South Carolina. Um, it is called, A Blind Man Gives You Insight. And the word in is in brackets. After the 2017 solar eclipse, the backs of my eyelids are reserved for celestial bodies. An upstart moon pauses between two egos and a world goes dark. I call it Tuesday. When an upstart abysmal orange crater passes through two congressional bodies and the world loses sight, weeps and covers its eyes, stands still. I call it insert day, when a black body passes through two or more egos wearing blue and goes blind for light years. Call me anything but blind. Who is anyone to call me anything but a celestial body? The backs of my eyelids are reserved for the heavens. I see holy lights tacked, bulleted through sheets of blackness. My eyes are open. I see everything as it is, nothing as it should be. You see an eclipse and open your eyes for the first time. How much of it comes to you when you're writing the poem? And how much do you go back and say, well, there's a couple of cops. Let me think about that. Uh, two egos were in blue. You know what I mean? That's a good question. Um, when I'm like drafting, a lot of it is like freestyle. So it's uh, whatever comes to mind at the moment. I think with the... Uh, at that point with the two bodies passing through, there were like a lot of things going on there that I thought of. So um, at the, I guess in the first uh, drafting stages, you know, it looked a little different, but um, when I edited it down, uh, it became, you know, more succinct and more, uh, you know, less wordy, <laughs> less wordy than the first part. So uh, yeah, there are a couple of things working there with that when i when i start i'm pretty mundane and i have to go back and like kick up the sound and kick up the images they're not often not there the first draft which is almost like closer to plain talk than what you right. would like for, for an end product for a poem but it comes different to all of us you know so it's this is very cool read, read another people need to hear your poetry read another poem okay <laughs> by the way the cover art Cover art is really, really cool. I think very cool. 
Yes, um, a wonderful artist by the name of Cedric Umoja from Columbia, South Carolina provided the cover. Um, he calls the, uh, the painting or the piece, they want us, but with our black off. Yeah. I just really love the image of um, the dots and the colors. It's, it reminded me of a wind chime. That's why uh, I chose that one. And, uh, you know, the three-headed uh, black body there is just, you know, so so many symbols going on there that um, it's up for interpretation. But I just love that. Yeah, you could talk, yeah. talk to him about what he's doing in that painting. But the guy in the middle has the word face and the A is upside down. Very, very faint on his forehead. Well, yes. and on the right, the way he did the the hanging tree so small, you almost don't, at first, don't catch it's a hanging tree. It's just, it's really, folks, we're talking about the cover of the book Chime by Len Lawson. And it's yeah. it's available from Get Fresh Books. And it's got a hell of a piece of art on the cover. It's just really fine. Yes, it's, right. it's extraordinary. Uh, so, okay, so this next poem um, is called Plan B. Or Big Nose. It runs in the family. A mountain erupting from fountains of family loins. Grandma Jean fed daddy with it and he spit it out onto my oily face. Covered my whole body with it. B for big bird beak. My feathers are a darker shade. B for buzzard, oh no. Call me black falcon. Tears slide smooth down its slope, rippling in pain as the nostrils flare. I am one big snout. I root, I grunt, I snort. B for bullies who said, hey, tell us what it smells like in China with that thing. Maybe I can dig there with it. Pack a bag and swim through the earth led by this golden shovel. Past family loins that spawned it. B for blood bones, scars from whips, past sins, psyches, and too many games of the dozens. Too many laughs at our own people. Too many crabs in barrels. Gawks at big noses and big lips. B for big butts and thighs. B for big brown eyes. B for blistering tears running raw on jagged brown faces, streaming from ravaged fountains. Even hers. She walks out of the closed room slowly, head down, shuffling her tear-stained feet, big brown eyes low, then straight at me. B for boy. He would have had your nose she moans. That's one of those poems that starts somewhere and goes a lot of other places. It really does. Um, originally, I wanted to write about, uh, like you said, one thing, well, really the the ending, but it made me think about just uh, myself and growing up dealing with, you know, being bullied for this and that, yeah, right. or like uh, big nose or like hairy arms or this, you know, things like that. And then it made me think of just um, black people in general, how, you know, we're ridiculed for having these distinct features, facial features, you know, uh, physical features. Um, so 
and uh, just to embrace those things. I think people are embracing those things more in society today than uh, they did before. And uh, yeah, there's a lot wrapped up. It's, it's sort of like a package. There's a lot wrapped in that poem. And one line threw me, threw me back to a Rita Dove poem, The Crabs in a Barrel. I don't, mm -hmm. know, if you, I don't know if you intended that, but. Very, no, it's a very, uh, you know, common issue in the black community where, you know, we want to promote ourselves rather than other people or try to hold other people down. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely a concept that yep. a lot of artists refer to. Well, I think we've got time for one more, so let's do one. Your choice. I'm going to do another South Carolina poem, if that's okay. Great. Great. Yeah. I have sort of a love-hate relationship with where I'm from because I grew up here. I've lived here my whole life. Um, love the scenery, love the images here. Like we're talking about the coast, just being close to uh, everyone in my family, but also the history is uh, something that's has to be negotiated. So um, this is called Love Letter for South Carolina. You marched through me with torches before I knew my hanged body was burning. Whisked through my marrow before the bones were broken. I knew I had to fly from your prayers and good intentions, but the song of your scything accent nailed my wings deep into your holy cross. This is the only way you know how to love. I test the limits of this relationship to see if it is really how I wish to launch myself into the afterlife. One minute I want you branded inside my cheeks just to French kiss your son each time I open my crescent moon mouth. The next, I feel you paintbrush my face with Southern hospitality dipped in black bodies, a canvas slapped behind sharp edged stars against rusty bars waving crimson heritage over my bruised head. But I have nowhere else to go and no one to take me there. I've grown to expect your schizophrenia, which makes me a narcissist for thinking I am better than you for remaining in your toxic space. I pretend not to see your gaping flaws and serve you. I smile at the palmetto trunk cracks in your lips. I tell my friends I'm in love when they cover their faces to the scars you gave me even on our best days. If I were stronger, I'd unleash my scorched tongue and pray eagles that may come out as flightless birds. But the attempt gathers me together for your next deafening slap. I'm yours for life. I wish your beatings were only BDSM. You seem more into necrophilia, reenacting death marches dressed in white instead of black. You romance me like your decrepit monuments. You bludgeon me to march over me again. Perhaps it's why you remain among last in education and first in domestic violence deaths. One more thing I'd like to know about. You're working on a PhD. Uh, are you up to your dissertation yet? You're working on that? I'm about there. Um, I was yes. what, what topic has got you interested enough to do a dissertation on it? You know what I mean? Yeah, like we were talking about other uh, just a minute ago about um, 
other South Carolina native poets. So I definitely want to delve into for the dissertation um, uh, what their relationship is to South Carolina and um, what makes them, uh, for lack of a better term, flee <laughs> from the state and uh, want to leave yeah. because uh, we have so many great poets that have uh, been born here, but uh, they tend not to stay very long. So that's my focus of the dissertation. Interesting. All right. And how their poems speak to that. All right. Hey, well, thanks a lot, Lynn. It's been really good to meet you here and to talk with you. Charlie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Folks, you're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. This is Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with Len Lawson, talking with us and sharing his poems from down in South Carolina. Now I'd like to take a look at an important little book that was recently published on Lawrence Ferlinghetti's 100th birthday just a month or so ago. It's called Little Boy, and the publisher calls it unclassifiable. So... Just let's review a little bit that Lawrence Ferlinghetti was born, of course, in 1919, 100 years ago. He founded City Lights Books and Publishers. He's an activist, painter, and author of numerous works of poetry, mostly prose and drama. And it's rather well known that his book, The Coney Island of the Mind, is one of the best-selling poetry books of all time. According to the publisher... He is right now living in San Francisco above the bookstore. Now, Little Boy, the title is Ferlinghetti himself as a child. And I'm taking this from the publisher. Shuffled from an overburdened mother to his French aunt to foster childhood with a wealthy Bronxville family. And his reminiscences are interweaved with Allen Ginsberg-esque high-energy bursts of raw emotion, rumination, and reflection. We'll get to all that. The idea is that um, what I find about the book, and I think it's going to be, it is and will be, underappreciated because it is not straightforward in the way the material is presented. But I actually, I believe that Ferlinghetti is, is... conducting a wonderful literary experiment in which he's attempting to make what is said and how it is said really match in an, as an artistic whole. And I think he gets huge points for trying to do that. I think he succeeds, and it's a book I, I know I'm going to have to read a couple of times. You have to pay attention, I think, to really catch how wise and insightful this book is. Maybe that's just me. As usual, I'll read you some excerpts so you can start to judge for yourself and see if you want to get a hold of this book. The book is only about 180 pages, and uh, it definitely reflects the wisdom of a life in literature and society. So, starting right off, I love to be alone with my own thoughts, my own filter that is my own strainer to filter so-called reality that is what's 
passing by the window. As Creeley said about poetry, you should report more than what's passing by the window, said he, meaning don't be so superficial, dear poet. You've got eternity to dig among other profundities or irrelevancies, or so I'll put another filter on my camera eye, another lens for cinema verte up close, and penetrate the surface, the surface nothing but ephemera, froth on the waves, the sea's lips kissing the shore. I should mention that for the first 15 pages, this book is a rather straightforward narrative of little boy's life. It's written from an omniscient point of view, and so it describes little boy doing this and little boy doing that, as if someone else were writing the uh, the narrative. Then on page 15, suddenly we find grown boy. And grown boy, we are told, came into his own voice and let loose his word hoard pent up within him. And from there on, the narration remains roughly chronological, but with meandering, almost no punctuation, though there are capital letters used to introduce new ideas. So it's not as if it's a total mass of, uh, of lowercase words without periods or commas or whatever. But it does roll right along, and it helps to be in the mood for that when you're reading it. Otherwise, you might just go, what's this? Or your brain may just want to turn off. But seriously, if you stick with it, You'll be somewhere. Now, he talks about a lot of things. Here's some views on beauty, romanticism. Romanticism, you haven't heard in an age, but maybe it's about time for it. For is science an objective, rational reason to rule unopposed forever? While poets and painters are all still trying to create pure light, the ultimate source, the first source of life, so why not a little bald romanticism? In the face of the dark, cruel world, in the face of the blind, unfeeling, unthinking universe, the blind fate with its scissors cutting up all life, including yours, snip, snip, and you're finished, so lie down and die. The earth turns on. Just uh, And some comments on alienation and on his own growing up, having often felt like an outsider. How did little boy become so alienated in this endless tale of endless thought? And he always taking the outsider's view when he grew up like he was Eugene Debs saying, while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Whereas the straight me was like little Lord Fauntleroy, living a straight life in luxurious settings, etc., etc., with nary a thought for his own unknown mother lost in transit like a mixed up story as in everybody's life. And so it was little Lord Fauntleroy adopted out of that orphan's home and no one throwing rose petals on him. And he knows, looking back, that he grew into a maturing in his outsider role as a rebel. And he talks about that. There are some people who just can't stand normal life. But why be normal when you can be happy? and must always be itching to take off somewhere or blow off somewhere and can't stand still mentally or otherwise like as if they had an ant up their blast hole or somewhere or they just have wild imaginations that can't be tied up by conventions or Ten Commandments. So that so that the status quo has always to be questioned and shook up or otherwise disturbed in pursuit of happiness 
and property. I was one of them. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't want to be disturbed in such pursuits, then you wouldn't like my dear young upstart rebel or be rebel or would be rebel or possible revolutionaire, my shadow self. But who knows how he'll turn out? And will he ascend Mount Olympus or Mount Dissolution? or Mount Monologue, or Mount Analogue? And that's the question for any young kid with his whole life laid out before him with a bright young kid with a great head on him, and he could become anything, a president, a great scientist, a great holy man, or a druggie, or a bum, or a great rebel, for there have been many heroes who were rebels. So, as I said, the book is interesting. The style rolls along like that, and... um, and here's another thought on being a rebel. Is not all history a single parade with buffoons masquerading as statesmen and lame brains and convenient idiots running the parade from beautiful Capitol buildings and most all of them bought off by lobbyists before their first vote? So what do you expect but universal fuck-ups? And man too stupid and greedy to save himself from eco-catastrophe As the deep dusk falls, oh man, there must be a better way to live and love and breathe. There's the outsider viewpoint. He's right out there with the old Chinese mountain recluse poets who sit on the edge and comment on the stupidity of the men in charge. And so, and so, be sure to meditate with your eyes open, yes, your eyes, the jewels of your head, while I unlock my word hoard of ruminations, meditations, exhortations, celebrations, commendations, excitations, lamentations, liberations, and ecstasies, plotless as a life, that is to say, like a life whose plot is only discovered after it is lived, and there's where he starts talking, and has various uh, statements throughout about what he's doing here in this book and how he understands life. It's interesting that he's, he has, he is, and he wrote this, of course, before he was 100 years old. Maybe he was 98 or 99, but the idea to think that he knows he doesn't have the answers, but he's still asking the questions. And that is so beautiful, a place we could all hope to be when we get anywhere near as old as he was when he wrote these words. He talks about life not quite having a plot. How it has no plot but wanders around, which characters wander around through life, in what would appear to be an aimless fashion, or at least with no steady intention or aim. And in the end, even the author has no idea where his back is headed or will end up just like life itself. And if art is really supposed to imitate life, we are left with a masterpiece, the past, a heap of broken images, the future an infinite no-man's land where virgin visions are born out of pure anarchy, while the Buddhists hold that suffering is the grand end of all being, and they devote themselves to getting through the night by suffering, of suffering, by attaining enlightenment. And so we find that A novel, like life, might have no plot. And finally, a comment on the plot of life. One more. We're getting toward the end of the book. And while I am trying to discover the plot of my life and can't be bothered trying to find the plot of life on earth 
and the only part of my plot I have discovered so far is that I am growing growing older by the split nanosecond, night and day, and all grows and grows to its fruition, my fruition. And even my nose grows when I'm asleep. That's a fact. So Lawrence Ferlinghetti, little boy. I've gone a little longer than usual on this comment, book commentary, but I hope you appreciate it, and I do think it's a truly wonderful book that uh, deserves your attention. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This is Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time, and tell your friends to be with us again next time when poetry speaks to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. <laughs>